We're carrying on with our um, series through Revelation. This is part six, um, and we're focusing on uh, Babylon, the fall of Babylon. Um, James, who's not here um, this morning, he's speaking at another church, so your, your prayers for him. Um, he's speaking on Babylon part two um, next week, I think, in the morning. So um, any heresies that I fall into today, he can correct next week. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's on him. So we're, so we're in through Revelation, and um, you've had lots of different speakers come up and speak to you, and they've often said how they've got on with Revelation, and mostly it's like they've not got on with Revelation very well at all. Um, I think it's the apocalyptic imagery and the general end of days feel about it. It can be quite unnerving. Um, and I, on the other side, I've always quite enjoyed um, Revelation. Maybe enjoyed is not quite the right word. I've always felt the weight of it, felt a profound sense of, of awe um, at God and his kingdom and his power and just the image of victory that runs throughout Revelation. I've really, I, I think I've resonated with that. There's grand themes of justice and reckoning and a final battle between good and evil. And I think that resonated with me. Um, I used to have... Um, on the background of my desktop computer um, when I was at, at home, um, uh, this verse um, from Revelation, and it's uh, Revelation 6, verse 16 and 17. So this was my, my desktop, and this was the background. Um, and it was this, and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in caves and in rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? And I had this, uh, the background on my desktop, but the background I made black and I put the text in red. Um, and it was, <laughs> it was probably a little bit alarming to look at. I think my mum looked at it and was like, do we need to worry about this boy? Like, what's, what's going on? Um, I don't quite know why I did that exactly, but I think it, it spoke to me in a way that I felt I needed to heed in some way. Um, I, I know I probably didn't really understand the depth and the symbolism of the text, um, but reading through Revelation, it spoke to me, and I think maybe I felt like I had nothing to lose. Um, I was quite a new Christian, uh, and reading about like, this huge upheaval that Revelation depicts, the end of days, the day of the Lord, I think I, I welcomed that, um, possibly as someone who felt a bit bruised and battered by life. I was like, bring on the change. Um, perhaps it was just the zeal of youth, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but for those who've got a lot invested in this life, who are heavily invested in the status quo, got a lot of material wealth, um, all of that being called in by an almighty God, things being called into account and weighed and measured, Maybe it's got a different ring to it. Um, the other way that I've interacted with Revelation a lot over the years is in prayer. Um, and um, in prayer and, and praying for people, I've used a lot of phrases like, Jesus, you are King of kings and Lord of lords that we read in our passage today. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's from Revelation. Jesus, you are the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. You make all things new. All of those are pulled straight out of context um, from um, Revelation, but the, I think using those words just as a declaration um, 
of the authority of Jesus, that all authority um, belongs to him, and in his authority we pray. I was praying with someone a while back, and we were kind of, it was a bit, a bit contested who Jesus was. He was like, well, that's fine, you can believe who Jesus is. I, you know, I think I agree with some other people. And I said, well, which Jesus do you want, which Jesus do you want me to pray in the name of? Jesus, who was a, who was a good man, um, said some nice things, um, and we're going to hope that he can help you now. Or do you want me to pray in the name of Jesus, who's King of Kings and Lord of Lords and has all authority, who has a claim over your life? Like, which one do you want me to pray in? And he was like, well, yeah, that one sounds better. Um, <laughs> but it matters. Um, and all of that stuff is from, is from Revelation. As I've, as I've reread Revelation and heard a good teaching and read some helpful perspectives over the years, I've kind of put it back into context and saw that it fits really well, I think, and with the rest of Scripture and with what Jesus teaches. Um, but if we look at our context um, and where we find ourselves this morning, um, we, uh, we meet, uh, so John is, has, has gone to the island of Patmos and he's had this revelation, had this vision, I mean, and in the chapter just before this one, um, God's judgment is being poured out and he meets seven angels and they're pouring out um, God's judgment out of seven bowls onto the earth. Um, and the, the last of these seven bowls is a depiction of the day of the Lord, so the final day um, when all of God's promises and judgments are acted out for the final time and God has the ultimate victory. Um, and John seems to go sort of back again over the details. He does this a few times in Revelation and kind of focuses in on different details of what's happened with, from a different perspective. And that seems to be what he's doing now. And he goes back to this moment of the fall of Babylon so in our passage, in verse 1, um, one of the angels who poured out these bowls of God's wrath, he says to John, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. And the question kind of hits us in the face. Why, is, why a prostitute? This is a symbolic image. That's what the angel says later. He says, this is, this is, what it's, um, this is a symbolic image. That, but why a prostitute? Has this got something to do with, with sex or, or sexual ethics or prostitution itself? And it's worth having a little detour and just saying God has, and the Bible has a lot to say um, about sexual morality. Um, and it's worth just pointing that out. Um, and if we could condense it down um, into, into a verse, I just wanted to look at this verse. It's from 1 Corinthians uh, 6, verse 19 and 20. It says this, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Like this, is the, this is the ideal um, uh, for all of us, that we, we, we belong to Jesus, um, we are his and he is ours, and our bodies, we're not our own, and our bodies are not just our own. Our bodies are not our own in the sense that we're the only ones who have any say what happens to it. No one, no one really believes that. When we have people who we love and care about, who are, um, who are damaging their bodies, where there's self-harm involved. We don't just throw up our hands and say, oh, well, it's their body. What we want is, is we come, want to come alongside them, we want healing for them, and we want them to treat their bodies with love. And the Lord has ransomed and redeemed us, or he wants to, um, if that hasn't happened yet for people. And we were bought at a price. And that price was Jesus laying down his life so that, like I said before, if we take hold of him, we are his and he is ours. 
and, and we are his so that he can rescue us from all the other things that would seek to own us instead. All the things that would make us slaves to them. Really, we'd call that sin or the power of sin or to use other biblical language, the dominion of darkness. But if Jesus has come into our lives, we can say to all those other things that threaten to have an unhealthy hold over us, we can say, sorry, you you can't own me. There's no dominion over me because there's a greater claim on my life. There's an unbreakable covenant with Jesus that makes all other agreements null and void. And his, his will for us is that we honour him in all that we do, including what we do sexually, that we don't do things in that area which harm ourselves or others, and that we, we're able for God, we're able to act in a way where God can bless that um, and can bless that in marriage. And it's, it's likely that you're sitting here today and you've had neg- negative experiences um, in this area, and like me, you've had to come to God in repentance and seek healing um, for damage that's occurred. And the Lord, the Lord does that. He does that better than anyone else, anyone, anywhere. He restores. He's the healer. So it's worth taking that detour in, into what God thinks about that, but that's not really the purpose of the symbol of the prostitute here. There's a, there's a deeper meaning that flows out from that same theme, that there are things that people want to buy and to own that ought not to be bought and ought not to be owned by anyone because those are things that only belong to God. Those are things that we give to God. So the angel shows John a, a woman riding a beast with seven heads and ten horns. And the fact that she's riding this beast is suggestive that her behaviour is somehow caught up with the beast is, is, is the, in the influence of whatever this creature is. And what the creature is is complicated Um, But throughout Revelation, it's portrayed as just the enemy of God and his people. The woman's actions, we could say, really are in partnership with or being influenced by this beast that she's sitting on top of. So she's dressed in purple and scarlet. These are the finest clothes you can get. She has a golden cup in her hand, and it says it's filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. She's literally drinking all of this in. It's an image of absolute corruption. It's dripping with wealth, hedonistic selfishness, oppression, and the murder of God's people. And it says in in verse 2, it says, With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery. There's a sense here that she's worshipped in the place of God, that wrapped up in this image is a false God that people give their allegiance to, that steals that allegiance away from God. And her name written across her forehead is Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. What's being pointed to here is probably the military and the financial might of the Roman Empire, which was the great power of the day. This is Rome who crushed people underfoot in conquest and demanded allegiance and worship. James said in the, the very first talk in this series, um, uh, the, the Roman Emperor Caesar was considered a god, he considered himself a god, and he was worshipped, and worship was commanded, and he took the titles, really crucially, he took the titles Saviour and Lord, and there's a clash about to happen with someone else claiming those titles. And if it, 
is Rome being alluded to here, and it's more complicated than that, but if it is Rome being alluded to here, and specifically it's Babylon that's named, what's going on? Is it Rome, or is it Babylon, or is it something else? And it reminds me a little bit of this, um, this quote from C.S. Lewis. This is from Mere Christianity. And he says, How monotonously alike all the great tyrants and conquerors have been. How gloriously different are the saints. And there's been the Roman Empire before that, as the Babylonian Empire. Um, and whether it's those two or some other, there, there have always been and always will be nations and empires of one sort or another who exalt themselves and their values, their economic and military might into a false god. They look at their security and they say, this is what we need, and they hold on to it rather than looking to God. They and they end up rejecting God. And ultimately, down that path, they end up as adversaries. And the point... It's not the point that C.S. Lewis is making, or the, the, he's making a, a deeper point, but, but every tyrannical empire does the same thing, looks to amass wealth and power and dominion, and they crush people underfoot in the process. And the message of the gospel doesn't work well with that. It really doesn't. It really fights against that, um, and a, a battle starts to occur. And Michelle talking about the Christians in Iran, what are they going through, what have they been going through, um, but they'll be meeting today um, and they will be encouraged um, and we've been praying for them. Um, so that's what tyrannical empires look like. They all kind of merge into one. They all end up doing the same thing. But by contrast, when God starts to live in our lives, we don't all look the same. Who we are comes fully to life in him. Our heritage, our likes, our dislikes, our passions... They start, to, they start to open up and we look different, but God is alive in us. That's the point that C.S. Lewis is making. And there have there've been Babylons, there have been Romes, and actually in all of his symbolism, John also picks out um, that in there there's the, ancient, the fall of Tyre and Edom, enemies, ancient enemies of Israel. But these were all nations who embodied rebellion against God in every way. And there will be empires like this again in the future, and there are empires like that now. <laughs> But what John seems to be pointing to is the system, is the military, financial, religious and ideological that sets itself up against God, that system that springs up when humanity decides it just doesn't need him. Every empire set apart from God goes the same way, power at all costs, and ultimately worship of the false God of their power and pride. And it reminded me of this verse from Habakkuk, um, I had the verse, and then I had to find out what book it was in. Um, but Habakkuk says, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. And what John is pointing to is that in the end, when the end comes, God will deal with these systems, and it will all come crashing down, and everyone will be held to account. And we have to remember that at this point in Revelation, it's still a letter to encourage churches it's still a letter to, to churches full of Christians who are suffering persecution, probably under the, the Roman Emperor, Emperor Domitian. And what they would get from this message is that, is that God has seen this corrupt and blasphemous empire, this system which is persecuting you. It's even worse than you think. But in the end, there'll be justice. The system will fall and I will hold everyone to account. 
this would have been a huge encouragement to them, as it is a huge encouragement to Christians everywhere, and it should be an encouragement to us. The end is decided, the battle is won, and there are casualties in the meantime, but they're being recorded and will be accounted for when God makes all things new. There's a lot of chaotic symbolism throughout all of this um, text, um, and I got a little bit lost, like Daniel did in the reading, um, with the horns and the heads and the numbers of them. Um, but there's a, there's a verse um, that stands out to me from, from all of this, um, like a beacon. And if you only take one thing away from today, let it be this. Ultimately, what God allows, he won't allow forever. And in verse 14, we see some combination of the powers that we've seen, um, the horns who are kings and the beast, rise up and wage war. And when they wage war, they wage war against the lamb. And we heard back in uh, Revelation 5, when Tim came and spoke to us, um, that, um, about a scroll. And this was in Revelation 5. Uh, it's a scroll with seven seals that no one could open. And John wept because no one could be found to open this scroll um, so that it could be read out and God's, um, uh, God's judgment could come. And we don't have wax seals nowadays. Um, we've, um, sort of, if I can borrow some of Tim's talk, we have, um, uh, we have lickable glue on envelopes and it, seal, and it seals it. Um, and this is probably more like an equivalent of like a recorded delivery where it's, it's sealed with a signature and you have, to, you have to have the authority and the signature to be able to receive that letter or package and open it up. Um, but back then, wax was dripped on, usually not as many as this, one, one blob of wax was dripped on, and you'd have a, a, a signet ring that had a seal of authority and was pressed in. You can see these, these are just plain, um, but it was pressed in, it would be the, it would be the authority of whoever um, the letter was, was from. And you'd have to have the right authority to be able to break that seal to open um, the, the scroll. We look at this scroll, and you see the seal of authority, and it's, there's authority, 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 seven times. And we look at that number seven, and we know from our previous looking, that number seven points to um, completeness or perfection. To open this scroll requires no less than complete authority, all authority, and no one can be found. And John is weeping. And we pick up um, the verses in chapter five. And it says, Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the centre of the throne. And then we jump to verse 13. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. So who is this lamb that looks as if it has been slain and is now praised and has glory and honour and power forever? This lamb that's described as a lion and has the authority that no one else has. This lamb that the combination of, of adversaries of the Lord rise up to wage war against. And this lamb is Jesus the one who has all authority, the Son of God who stepped down into history to lay down his life to be the perfect sacrificial lamb 
an offering acceptable to God for the forgiveness of sins. This is Jesus triumphant. If we go back to verse 14 from our passage, they will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen and faithful followers. See, over this passage and really over the whole of Revelation, this phrase stands like a banner. This phrase and phrases like it. The Lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen and faithful followers. Revelation is full of symbolism and, and whether it's, it means particularly one thing or another thing, whether there's some things which are going to happen which are literal or more of it's figurative, whether the beast is Rome or Babylon or, or something else, the lamb will triumph and with him will be his called, chosen and faithful followers because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And I looked at the, um, the Greek um, word translated as, as king and, and lords. I wondered if it was the same word between the, the king, capital K, and the small k, kings. And it is the same word, actually. Um, and it's just the singular king, plural kings, singular lord, plural lords. But in that, there's a, there's a truth um, that there are many lords, but there's one true lord. There are many kings, and we have one now, but there's one true king that they'll all have to answer to. And our role, if we want it, is to hear that call over our life, to respond to his choosing of us, and then to be faithful. Because in the end, no matter what, overall, he is victorious. <laughs>